We'll get our Bibles out and open to 1 Kings chapter 19, page 413 in that pew Bible in front of you. We are uh, in our seventh installment in the life of Elijah, and our goal in this series we're calling Abandon is really to, as I said last week, to step into the skin of Elijah and really just feel what he felt and hear what he heard and understand what he understood and allow God to use him to minister to us and to form and shape our understanding of him. So we'd be grateful as God does that. You know, your singing this morning was just, uh, it's always good, but boy, it was over the top this morning. You really were just praising the Lord. And as I was listening to you sing, I was thinking about uh, yesterday. We had a wonderful day as uh, Awana, our Awana ministry kicks off, starts tonight, but we had a big celebration for that yesterday. And just seeing all those children and all those families preparing for a new season of studying and learning and memorizing God's Word and thinking about just God's goodness to us as a fellowship. We uh, had an amazing time at men's night this past week. Uh, just we've, we've had record crowds in both the steak night and in uh, our breakfast, which will be this Saturday for those of you that want to participate in that. Just so many wonderful things happening. We Our block party ministry and just seeing how God is using you in so many ways. And I just want to remind you that although we come into this place, we refer to this place as a sanctuary. And in many ways, um, that could be a fitting term. Although really, you and me as the people of God are the sanctuary of God. But just a reminder that... To whom much is given, much is expected. And when we come into this room, uh, there's no doubt more spiritual warfare that happens in here on Sunday morning than any other place or time in your life throughout the course of the week. And so understand that this is a war room and that there are powers and principalities that do not want you not only to get here but to hear. And so when you come in, it's, it's wonderful to see you excited and, you know, to have your Bible and your pen and your listening guide ready to go. But, but remember, you need a, a wartime mentality. There's spiritual warfare in this place when we're together because there's much possibility and there are many, many who are pitted against what God desires to do in your life. Amen? Okay. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we are grateful that we can know so many wonderful things about you because you've chosen to reveal yourself to us through the Lord Jesus and through this word, and we are grateful for it. And yet, Lord, we also come this morning humbly confessing that all that we know doesn't scratch the surface of who you are. And God, our desire today is merely to have ears to hear and hearts willing to receive. As we know, Lord, that the flesh rails against the truth. Lord, may your spirit overpower our flesh in this time. And help us, Lord, to be attentive and receptive to what you have to say that we might glorify your holy and precious name. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. I do want to say uh, happy anniversary to Neil and Martha Hoover today for 40 years of marriage. Praise the Lord for you. So happy anniversary. Amen. So as you get your listening guide out, we'll just begin by setting the stage. When you look at this narrative about Elijah, it's a reminder to us that the Bible is fearless in exploring the darker side of the human experience. It is utterly fearless. What you find in Scripture 
is the reality of humanity. That, that as we've seen every single week in this series, that God's not, not polishing up these saints and presenting them to us as perfect people, but we can relate to all the flaws and the struggles and the challenges that go on in Scripture. And certainly that's true with Elijah. And so he comes on the scene just like a meteor out of nowhere. That this tremendously dark season amongst the people of God and the nation of Israel and under the horrible leadership of this oppressive king Ahab and his wife Jezebel and into the picture comes God's prophet proclaiming that there will be no rain, there will be no dew as judgment because of their worship of Baal, this false god of the harvest. And so three and a half years goes by, no rain. We followed Elijah through that whole period of time. And then comes this great culmination, the big challenge on Mount Carmel where Elijah goes head on with all the prophets of Baal and utterly demolishes them. And there's no question after that confrontation that Baal is a false god, a powerless god, and the only true god is Yahweh, the one whom Elijah has come to proclaim. His name means that Yahweh is God. And so he's, you would think, just uh, standing on the absolute mountaintop of being a prophet, and yet it has led him to the most unexpected of responses and, and, and truly one of the most interesting and fascinating places in all of Scripture is to study Elijah's response to what has gone on. And so we're going to begin reading in verse 1, and we're going to follow Elijah along this path. Verse 1, after this confrontation, this victory, where there should be a parade and a celebration and a burning of all the, all the temples and all the Asherah poles, the Bible says that Ahab, the king, told Jezebel, his wife, all that Elijah had done and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw this, he arose and ran for his life, and he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. And he said, It is enough now, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then, as he lay and slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose, and he ate, and he drank. And he went in the strength of the food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And there... He went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, Why are you here, Elijah? So he said, Why well, have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. We'll pause there. Now, there's one more piece to this puzzle that we need to talk about before we move to what I'm really going to talk with you about this morning. And we first just need to back up to last week and remember that what we discovered was is that Elijah, uh, in his unmet expectations, his emotions got 
overwhelming to him and then led him into isolation. And so those are the steps that sort of are building to set him up for what ultimately happens. So he runs to Beersheba and it's the southernmost part of Judah. So basically he's gone as far to the edge of civilization as he can possibly go. He leaves his servant behind and then he goes another day out by himself. Now, Things that grow in a secret garden grow mutant. Things that grow in a secret garden grow mutant. That is a statement by one of my favorite authors. His name is David Pallison. He's a, uh, just an amazing author. There's a bunch of his resources in the bookstore. And it's such a true statement. Those things that grow in the secret garden will grow mutant. They will not grow naturally. They will not grow as they're intended. They will grow in a way that they're not intended to grow. And I want you to see this issue of comparison and how important it is for us to talk about this morning, especially in light of who we are and where we currently live and the culture in which surrounds us. You know, comparison just by nature, is a fundamental human impulse. There's no way to escape it or to completely rid your life of it. But this feeling that we feel about uh, someone else's achievement sometimes can be healthy. See, sometimes we can discover someone else's uh, success or achievements, and it can inspire us to then press forward on our own and we can give testimonies of times where someone else has triumphed and because of their triumph and their story it has pushed us to then face our fears or overcome our challenges and that's good and that's a time where comparison can be helpful but we live in a culture that feasts on comparison like a like a crocodile on a helpless gazelle it's it's a it's a culture where it begins early on. I think that uh, it, it just keeps pressing younger and younger into our culture. Now when children are even in elementary school already, there's this deep feeling of comparison. And children are, are already wrestling with the, the kind of clothes they wear, the shoes they wear, even their haircut in elementary school. And then you move into high school and it becomes the kind of car that you drive or what sport you play or what group of people you're accepted by or what your GPA is or whatever the case may be. And then you move into adulthood and and each place thinking that you would be free from that, moving into adulthood, thinking you're putting all those things of high school behind you. And yet as you're raising a family, you realize the comparisons still come. And there's Big comparisons like uh, your children compared to other people's children. And there's silly comparisons but do, that do damage nonetheless like your baked chicken versus your mother-in-law's baked chicken. <laughs> and it just keeps going. And even when you become a senior adult, you would think at that point it would finally be behind us. But... No, I'm sad to report that it's not. I have over, literally overheard conversations between senior adults where they were not just comparing their medications, their surgeries, their knee replacements, but even how their false teeth fit. <laughs> Lord help us. The comparisons never stop. But never is, never, is the desire to compare stronger than when we're in a detour. Than when life has shifted us off balance. When suddenly we're in a place we don't understand, didn't expect. We're bewildered. We're off track. We're not where we anticipated being. And why is that? Well, it's because we're... In a detour, we're searching for understanding. And we don't 
we're, we're trying to, to grab onto whatever we can to figure out what's going on. Now, I want you to watch Elijah do that. Look back at verse 4. He goes a day's journey into the wilderness. He finally rests. Now, now he has gone just miles and miles and miles. He finally sits down under a tree. And the very first thing he says, he prays that he might die. And here's what he says. It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. For I'm no better than my father's. Now, what is he referring to there? He's not referring to his ancestors. He's not referring to his his own father and his grandfather. And no, no, he's referring to the prophets that had come before him. He's referring to the fact that Israel and Judah, or even before that, all the prophets that have come before him, though they all experienced varying degrees of success, none had been successful in ridding God's people of idolatry. And now Elijah sees his name added to that list, a list of people who ultimately failed at the great task. And it's a failure that he really can't bear. And so he asked God to kill him. Now, he doesn't want to die. How do I know that? Well, because if he wanted to die, he simply would have stayed close to Jezebel, right? It would have been easy. He doesn't want to die but he does see death as a way out, and he is open to God ending his suffering. He just doesn't see any other way out. He doesn't know where else to go. And this is what happens in our mind when we're seeing ourselves as an abject failure. So it's a predictable process. We build up expectations in human wisdom. They inevitably go unmet. We're left with the pieces of what we thought was going to happen. In our disappointment, our emotions get out of control. In that emotional moment, we isolate ourselves because we don't understand what's going on. We can't explain what's going on. And we don't want people to see us in that state. And then in that moment, we're perfectly positioned to fall victim to this Horrible trap, the trap of comparison. Now, nowhere is this more prevalent or obvious or easy for me to make a point than the narrow, distorted slice of reality that's displayed every moment on social media is perfectly constructed to make us feel deficient and discouraged. It is the perfect tool. It's the perfect weapon. It's the perfect bait. It's the ultimate lure into comparison. Because where are you when you're engrossing yourself in social media? You're alone in your own thoughts. And as you're scrolling through What you're being exposed to is mostly a fraud. It's a picture of what people wish were reality. It's a a make-believe world. And it's there to leave you wanting. It's not there to lift you up or to build you up. It's there to tear you down and to show you what you're not and what you don't have and who you'll never be. But let me just give you some realities about comparison to consider. These aren't on your handout, but if you want to jot them down in the space to the side, you can. First of all, comparison has a timing problem. When you compare, you are comparing what? You're comparing your current situation to someone else's current situation, and that is is the, the first flaw in comparison, because comparison cannot and will not allow you to move beyond that into the realization that you are not, you're not finite. You're not stuck in time. 
but you're comparing yourself to someone who has been something different and on their way to being something different as you are the same. You're on a, you're, you're on a moving path. You can't ignore the past while forgetting that we have a future that's still unknown. You see, so comparison, it fails at that because you're comparing yourself to, to what? Something that's, that can't see beyond the moment. So it has no power to predict. Secondly, comparison is, it has a truth problem. Comparison has to live in, in partial truth. It has to. You never can compare yourself in complete truth. It's impossible. You see, when we get down to it, first of all, we don't even know enough about ourselves to compare ourselves to others. We certainly don't know enough about anyone else. You know, we get ourselves all worked up because we're in the midst of a detour and life has become difficult and we're rattled and we're emotional and we're isolated. And then we allow this voice to tell us that it's a lot tougher for us than it is for other people. The problem is, is that you're basing that on faulty information because the truth is you don't know what someone else is going through. You don't know what they have gone through. You don't know what they're currently going through. All you know is what they want you to know, right? And so there's a truth problem. You don't have ultimate truth. Furthermore, we're all great actors. And there's a lot of folks on social media that could win an Academy Award. Some of you in this room. And believe me, it's not something you should be proud of. And so as like trained actors, you're presenting something that you wish to be true. It has no basis. It's not edifying or building up anyone. So there's a truth problem if you compare yourself. Not only that, there's a pride problem. What's the motivation for comparison? What is it inside of us that, that lures us in to compare ourselves to other people? Well, here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes us proud, the pleasure of being above another. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. He says, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. It's interesting to me, 2,000 years before social media, and it's like Paul knew exactly what I'd be talking about. Commend themselves. Oh, look at how wonderful my life is. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. They're not wise. So be careful. You know, as followers of Christ, many of our comparisons, we need to understand this, are rooted. They're rooted in what we would have to admit is the feeling that God has either been unfair to us or that he hasn't been good to us. Because see, as a Christ follower to say, well, I wish I had what someone else has, is to say that your heavenly Father, who is always good and sovereign, hasn't given you what he ought to give you or that you in some way know better than he. So here's the bottom line. When we compare, we'll never measure up, and the feelings of inadequacy will never go away. And if we don't deal with this issue of comparison, at some point, these perceived shortfalls or deficiencies in your life are going to build up, and they're going to hit you like an avalanche, and they're going to cause you great, great problems. 
especially in the midst of a detour. So you see, Elijah, those words that he speaks are not just blank words. When he says that he's just like his predecessors, he's doing the same thing that we do, and it's a trap. Now, does this surprise you of this man of God? This is the greatest prophet in Scripture. I mean, this is the, 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 the supreme Old Testament prophet, Elijah. This is the one. And here he is, alone, having a pity party under a broom tree, all by himself, completely isolated, having run away from everything he supposedly professed to believe or was or was called to be. So what about you this morning? You ever been so down that you, you didn't want anyone around you? You didn't want anyone to see you? You ever felt that feeling of depression? It's like the common cold of emotions. There's so much bottled up in that word depression. It, it means a hundred different things to a hundred different people at the same time in this room. But make no mistake about it, it's real and it's common and it happens and it's complex. And eventually, it touches every life, either directly or indirectly, but it will touch every life. And it would be nice to think that, well, as Christians, we wouldn't have dark days. And there's people and movements that would try to convince you that that's the way things are supposed to be that maybe discouragement would only come to those who are apart from God, and therefore there's reason for their discouragement. But for someone who knows God, who is a child of God, there's no room for discouragement. Well, I would say that it's a myth that faith is always smiling. It's a myth. Elijah's depression, his downcast spirit, it wasn't bound up in one simple cause. It, it stemmed from a number of things. It's, it's complex. It, doesn't, it didn't happen in one step. That's why we've taken such uh, slow steps through this process to, to follow each step down the path to, to help us understand the complexity of how he's ended up where he is. I just want to remind you of a few things that make up this experience for you and me and for Elijah. First of all, I just want to remind you that there's fear. You know, what set Elijah off was fear. The threat, uh, the death threat from Jezebel set him into uh, this fearful moment. It's scary. Secondly, there's failure. There's that voice that's saying, well, you failed. You failed. This negative opinion that Elijah held about himself. It's the same thing that happens to us. This feeling like there's no way to win, that there's nothing you can do to make a difference. And so as fear presses in, Elijah begins to flee, which then leads to fatigue. He gets worn down. He, he starts to become emotionally drained and physically exhausted, and so he just sort of flops down under this tree finally. And then lastly, I would say he feels forsaken. He feels forsaken not only by God, but notice that, that he says there that, that he's the only one you know, that no one's left. You see that he's all alone. It's not just you, God, that have forgotten me, but everyone's forgotten me. I'm forsaken. It's almost like he's, 
He's paranoid now that everyone's out to get him. So what happens is Elijah finds himself in a place where he's looking at life through these dark glasses. And everything that he sees, every direction that he looks in, all he can see is darkness. And what happens when we're in the dark? What happens when we just begin to see darkness everywhere? Well, darkness is a distortion. It's a distortion. And when we can't see what God's up to, what do we do? We begin to fabricate. We create images and shapes that frighten us. Isn't it interesting that growing up in your lifetime of experience, why is it that you have never imagined in the darkness something good and wonderful? Why is it that what makes the darkness scary Why does the mind immediately go in the negative direction? Why don't we imagine? Why doesn't a child laying in bed, instead of thinking about the monster underneath the bed or in the closet, why don't they just naturally in the dark go, I think there's a chocolate fountain over there. Why, why don't they do that? They never do. And you grow up and you just become more proficient. And when you see darkness, you just begin to, to create and conjure up things. And there are always things that frighten you. And so we can relate to Elijah. Some of you can relate right now. You're walking through a season of your life where... You know what it is to feel afraid or alone or exhausted, maybe burned out or even hopeless. So I want you to see what God does to his prophet to lift him up out of this moment. I want us to, to really just slow down and take a moment and just breathe this in. What Elijah is dealing with and how God ministers to him in his darkness. He's going to say some things to Elijah, but as God would do, he's not going to say them the way we would say them. He's not even going to say them the way I'm going to say them. He's going to say them in in his way, but it'll be completely obvious to you what it is he's saying. So here's the first thing he says. God says, I love you. I love you. Just that simple. I love you. I love you in the midst of your depression. I love you in the midst of your failure. I love you in the midst of your discouragement. I love you in the midst of all of the things that you've done wrong and all of your mistakes and all of your regrets, I love you. I love you. Look at what happens. Look at verse 5. He lays down to sleep under a broom tree. Suddenly an angel touches him and said to him, Arise and eat. Now, if we were to read through the Scripture and we were to find every place that an angel shows up, Normally, the first words out of the angel's mouth would be what? Fear not. But here, it's arise and eat. And look at verse 6. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. So, Before God deals with the, the spiritual things that are going on in Elijah, he deals with his physical need and his emotional need. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Why? 
How many times have you heard me say, because grace always precedes truth, right? Because all the truth in the world is useless to a heart that's hard or closed. It's useless. The Bible would confirm that a thousand different ways. Utter truthfulness is no good to a closed heart. It's no good. It's nothing. So the angel of the Lord doesn't show up and say, hey, Padna, we need to talk. The angel of the Lord doesn't show up with a list of things that Elijah did wrong. The angel of the Lord doesn't show up with a list of things that Elijah needs to be doing. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't give him solutions. Mm-mm. Before anything else can be accomplished, Elijah needs to know that he's loved. See, he can't receive what God wants to tell him until he knows he's loved. You need to just let that set on you for a second. When you're dark, you need to know you're loved. When someone you love is depressed, don't come at them with solutions. Don't bring them a bunch of information. Always start with grace. God says, I love you. Why don't you wake up? Look, I baked you a cake and a glass of water. Amen. I love angel food cake. He says, I love you. But what else does he do? He doesn't just show Elijah that he loves him. He listens to him. Look at at verse 9. Look at the second half of verse 9. And behold, the word of the Lord came to came to him, and he said to him, well, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he asked the question. Look at verse 13. Suddenly the voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Both times Elijah answers the exact same way. It's the same question, same answer. But here's the point I'm making. This isn't just any angel, which would have been fine if it was, but it's the angel of the Lord. So we know that when the angel of the Lord shows up, that's the pre-incarnate Christ. So The Lord Jesus says, what are you doing here? Now, God never asks a question because he needs information. So he asks the question. If you examine Elijah's answer, you can see that what Elijah says is completely false. Again, there's no rebuke. There's no correction. And then... A few moments later, he asks the same question. Elijah gives the same response. God's just drawing. Look, think about this. Think about the question. You know what God does? He asks an open-ended question. He didn't ask a, a yes or no or a nod your head. He says, I love you. And then he starts to slowly draw him out. He's just getting Elijah to open up and start talking. What a blessing. What a God we serve. What else does he say besides I love you? He says, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. You see, you may be done with you, and you may be convinced that I'm done with you and that everyone should be done with you. And God understands that. But he wants Elijah to know he's not done with him. But when you're down, when you're in darkness, you have to be gentle. You can't just... You you can't just pounce on Elijah. He's not, he's not in, in a position to be able to, to take much. So watch the gentleness of God in verse 7. The angel of the Lord came back a second time. Now, 
Now, the first time he comes, he does something. The second time he comes, he does the same thing. And it's there in the text if you look. He comes a second time and he touched him. He just touched him. He just put his hand on him. When I walk past you, I try to just put my hand on you. I just want you to know that I care about you. Sometimes I don't have to say anything. I just put my hand. I just touch you. God just touched him. And look at what he says. He says, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. What journey? We're not going on a journey, man. The journey's over. That's why I dropped my my servant off and came out here by myself. I'm done with the ministry. I'm a failure. It's over. I'm not leaving from under this tree. I came out here to end it. God doesn't give some grand proclamation about all the details about what's ahead. He's not ready for that. He just said, hey, you need to get up and eat because you're going to need your nourishment for the journey. That's it. So Elijah, no doubt, gets up, and as he begins to eat, he begins to think to himself, the journey? Hmm. There's a journey. Wonder what the journey is. You see, when you feel like you're done with you and everyone else is done with you, God wants you to know he's not done with you. He's not done with you. You know, he's, he's saying to Elijah, hey, he's cluing him in. There's things that you don't know. Hmm. See, that makes me, that, that makes me uh, feel a little better when I'm dark, when I'm down. I want to know that there's things that I don't know. Because when everything I do know seems dark, I want to know there's things I don't know. And when you get a little clue like you're going to need to eat for the journey, hmm. just like any child who heard who had a good father who said, hey, get ready, we're going to go somewhere. There's a little bit of excitement. Hey, where are we going? What are we going to do? There's a journey. Hey, God's saying, my plans for you are greater than your regrets. They're bigger than all your failures. I'm not done with you. And then lastly, and it has to come in this order. You could never begin here or it just would be an utter failure. I love you. I'm not done with you. And I'm not like you. Like a ray of hope into our darkness, we need to hear the voice of God gently remind us I'm not like you. I'm not at all like you. I'm so amazingly and so in such spectacular fashion different than you. And it's good. And so look at verse 8. So he arose and he ate and drank and he went in the strength of the food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Mount Ord, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and he spent the night in that place. Now, if you were to, I mean, you could just, when you get home tonight, flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 1 and you can see where God's people made the journey that he just made, the exact journey. Mount Orb is the mountain of God. What mountain is Mount Orb? 
It's got another name, Sinai. That's the same mountain that Moses was on. And when Moses went down, he went the exact same, exact same path that Elijah just did. Now, when the people of God and all their herds and all their flocks made that journey in Deuteronomy chapter 1, how long did it take? It took 11 days. Now, if you can move a nation of people along that path in 11 days, why did it take Elijah 40 days? Well, I'm not exactly sure. But I think it's important to note that God wasn't in a hurry. He wasn't rushing Elijah. Just because we read this followed by this, don't get the sense that he's gentle. And so 40 days. And when he gets there, he goes in a cave. Oh, that's interesting. There's no talk of caves prior to this. Now suddenly there's a cave, and he spends the night there. Look at verse 11. And then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. Hmm. Well, there's a passage that most of us are familiar with. Now, if that's the same place that... Moses was in Exodus 33, which it is. And if you remember what happened in Exodus 33, Moses ascends to the top of Sinai and he asks the Lord, <clears throat> he says, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to see you. And God revealed himself to Moses in a fire. Remember, Moses had to get behind the cleft of a rock to, to hide himself or else he would die. And even as God passed, he had to put his hand over the front of Moses so that Moses could only see him from the back as he moved on. And even then, when Moses went down, he was glowing. His countenance was radiant from being in the presence of God. So... Here we are in the same place. And here's this broken prophet brought to the same place. And it begs the question, well, why does God reveal himself to Moses as a fire and to Elijah in a whisper? What's God teaching Elijah? What's God teaching us? Well, if you understand how Elijah got to this moment, then it would all make perfect sense. God's saying to Elijah, he's saying, if you expect me to show up in a fire, then I'll come in a whisper. And if you expect me to come in a whisper, I'm probably going to show up in a fire. You see, what had gotten Elijah where he is is not the fact that God had let him down, is it? God hadn't let Elijah down. What let Elijah down? His expectations. And so God's going back to the source. And he's dealing with his expectations. And he's saying to Elijah, he's saying, listen, I can come as a fire or a wind or an earthquake or a whisper or a thousand other things if I want to. Remember when I fed you in the wilderness by the ravens 
And I provided water from a brook in the midst of a drought. And then when I wanted you to move, I dried up the drought. And remember when you moved from there, you went to a widow's house in Zarephath. And remember while you were there that the oil never ran dry and that miraculously every day there was provision for that day. Remember that, Elijah? That I can reveal myself in any way I want to reveal myself. But when you put me in a box, when you confine me to your expectations and your understanding, you're setting yourself up for disaster. You're moving yourself into a position that's going to lead you into a place of darkness. And so when the fire comes or the wind comes or the earthquake comes and Elijah knows the story of Moses. He knows where Moses was. He knows he's there. He's, he knows. And he's no doubt expecting God to do what he did before. And he's also saying to Elijah, you know, you, you called fire down on Mount Carmel. And so you were expecting me To use that moment to rid people of idolatry, to thwart your enemies, to culminate all of your obedience over the last three and a half years and however many years before that you've been preparing for this moment, that all of that would come to this moment where it would all be wrapped up in a nice, neat package with a bow on top and make perfect sense to Elijah and everyone else. But God didn't rain fire down on Ahab and Jezebel like he did the altar. He didn't do that. He says, Elijah, you thought your plan was the only plan, or you thought your plan was the plan, but it's not. I have a plan. I'm not like you. And so look at what follows. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord says to him, Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Saphat, of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, that may not seem shocking to you, but to Elijah, that was shocking. And here's why it was shocking. First of all, who's Haziel? Haziel is a pagan. Haziel's not even a follower of God. Remember, Elijah had this expectation that God was going to do this thing a certain way that made sense to him and which is exactly what we do. We pick up the pen and we sit down and begin to scribble out the story of our lives. And the Spirit of God is constantly trying to get us to set the pen down and to let Him lead, guide, and direct us. But it's a battle because we, we constantly want to pick the pen up. And as we, are, as we are comparing ourselves to other people and as we're desiring other things, we want to pick the pen up and start writing again because we, we think we know the way things ought to go and the way things ought to be. And, and God, when He finally says, now, it's my turn to talk. Let me tell you how I'm going to do this. I want you to go anoint a pagan. That's what I want you to do. I'm going to use a pagan named Haziel. Then I'm going to use a commander named Jehu. I'm going to do this in a way nobody would have ever dreamed I would do this. And furthermore, there's a guy out there. 
And his name is almost the same as yours, but it's just enough different to drive us all crazy for 2,000 years. (laughs) And I'm going to bring him into your life. And I'm going to orchestrate some events over a period of time. And everything that I've determined to do is going to happen exactly as I've determined for it to happen. Now, for the sake of today and this message, we just need to stop one second. And we need to realize how much the God of the Bible is not like us. And then no matter what we think, the truth of the matter is, is that we really are standing merely on the shore of the ocean of his holiness. And that we forever wade off into our own understanding and try to make things be that he never intended to be. Rather than just trusting him to do what he has ordained to do and what he will do. And since we're all in this boat together and we all can relate to Elijah and we all fall prey to these same tendencies and we all are moving in and out of detours in our lives. I think it would be wise for us to just admit before God That even if we have an imperfect understanding of what the purpose may be, which is always the case, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it always the case that we have an imperfect understanding of what the purpose may be? And so even when we do, even when we do, your detour will allow an opportunity for God's grace and strength to shine in your life. You see, the amazing thing about Elijah, the amazing thing about God, the amazing thing about me and you and our relationship with him is simply this. The detour is our detour. It's not God's detour. God doesn't detour. And so we detour off the cliff and we find ourselves in these dark moments of of depression and, and despondency and trying to figure out what in the world is happening and hitting the panic button. And here's Elijah, the man of God. Hmm. The man of God on the mountain. Not any mountain, but the same mountain that Moses was on. So in Luke 9, there's this moment where I wonder about those of you in the room that, you know, when I say the word depression, you fully identify. And you think, maybe, that it disqualifies you, that it somehow pulls you beyond being able to do all the things that God created you to do. That it limits you, that it hinders you. And I say, let's look at Elijah for a second. So there's a mountain in Luke chapter 9. Jesus goes up it to pray. He takes Peter, James, and John with him. They get to the top of the mountain, and the Bible says that his appearance begins to change. He begins to shine. And lo and behold, as the three disciples are lulled into a trance, who shows up? Elijah. 
and Moses. The two that stood on that mountain are now on a mountain. Except for this time, they're face to face with the glory of God. There's no cave or no cleft on this mountain. They're right there having a conversation about Jesus' departure. Now, what changed? You see, when Moses was on the mountain, he had to get down in the cleft of the rock. He had to be covered up and protected and behind. And then when Elijah came to the mountain, he had to be inside the cave. And what does the Bible say happened when the fire comes and the earthquake comes and the wind comes? What, what gets rent in two? What shakes and cracks and rips? And the mountain does. The mountain bears the brunt. The mountain absorbs the, the power and the force and the wrath of God. It's absorbed into the mountain. And because of the shielding of the mountain, the two men can survive the presence of God. But when they're standing in front of Jesus, they can look at him face to face because Jesus absorbs the wrath of God. He's the one that takes the fire and the rain. He's the one that takes the wind. He absorbs it so that you and I can then live. And so listen, it's Elijah who's up there, a man with a nature just like ours. So this morning, God wants you to know he loves you. He's not done with you. And he's not like you. And we should be grateful for that. We should run to him. And we should say, God, we receive your word today. We receive your, your warning and your instruction. We recognize that we do not need to be alone or to be isolated. But we need to be together in family. Where a God who's not like us, we can, we can hear the way that you have worked in other people's lives differently than ours. So we can be continually reminded. Because if we isolate ourselves, if we stay alone, we think God only works the way he works in our life. But the way we begin to, to start to to step off into this ocean of his holiness is by rubbing shoulders with each other and realizing how God has moved in such varying ways across the spectrum of his family, right? So that's why it's important. It's important to be in community. It's important to be a part of what God's doing. And I would also say that as a church, we, we want to... We want to walk with you through your darkness. We want to love you in the midst of your need. We want to care for you and provide for you. And there are just, just a few things that come to my mind that are right now in, in this moment that really had nothing to do with the fact that I was preaching this sermon today. They just are. That we'll... We'll be having some suicide prevention training coming up in the next couple of months. You need to be looking for that where we're going to make sure that as a people we learn how to care for those around us, how to identify darkness, how to, how to share with people who are dark and what to do in that situation. We'll have a seminar early in November, how to survive the holidays that will help you, how to navigate through a time when so many people get dark. 
It will be helpful for you to be a part of that if that's a, a, a time, a season when you typically struggle. I bought, I have every one of these pamphlets I could get my hands on. There's a giant stack of them in the bookstore, and you can grab one as soon as the service is over. Just go in there, and if you, got, if you don't have any money, just take one. If you want to make a donation, make a donation. But it's a very helpful little booklet on depression that is just wonderful, and you can use to, for yourself or for someone. But listen, you got to be a part of a family. You got to be a part of community. I mean, I'm going to end this morning, and then we're going to, most of us are going to break up and go into small groups. And the truth of the matter is, is that they're all full. All the classrooms are full. We don't have any empty classrooms. We don't have any space. We have space for you. We have space for you. We'll scoot around and make room. We'll squeeze in. We'll figure it out. Nobody's going to ask you any questions. Nobody's going to put you on the spot. But it's a step you need to take. You cannot isolate yourself. If God's calling you to himself, answer. If he's calling you to his family, answer. Whatever he's saying, respond. He wants you to know he loves you. He's not done with you. But he's not like you. Let's stand and bow our heads.